share today? Any word of testimony? We had a great uh, small group training time at uh, 3 o'clock for our leaders. Uh, John did a good job tailoring uh, this, this year's leadership development to our small groups. And we started with the verse uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 that has been uh, the uh, driving force of our small groups ever since we started them uh, many years ago. Uh, but I'll read it to you again. It says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And Paul talks about wanting to get together with a group of Christians so that they can give each other spiritual, spiritual gifts, spiritual resources, spiritual encouragement uh, that they might build up each other's faith. And that's really what our small groups are all about. And John did a great job of just uh, leading us as leaders through that. And now he's going to continue to talk about that. Uh, let me just give the, the same plug that I gave the small group leaders. We had 384 uh, today in uh, worship service, which is really up. It, it's a big, it was a big Sunday today. Um, but I think there's about 120, 120, maybe somewhere in that neighborhood, 125 adults uh, involved or people involved in small groups. Uh, what that means is there's a lot of people, especially a lot of adults who aren't in any small group. And so uh, we really need to focus on uh, drawing in and making connections with people, uh, bringing them into the family, to the faith family through small groups. And so uh, I want to challenge you to have that on your mind, to have that on your heart. Uh, think of creative ways that you can be involved in that. And uh, uh, thank you, John, for coming and uh, ministering to us today. It's been a good afternoon for me already, and I'm, I'm looking forward to tonight. So, John, come on up. Well, good evening. Good to see you guys. Good to be here. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, open them to First Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be reading there. And it was a good time with our leaders, and I'm glad to have... Uh, Gotten to be a part of that time this afternoon, and we talked about purpose and alignment. And for those of you that were um, in our training two years ago and went through building powerful ministry teams with us, we talked about three of those elements, purpose, alignment, and process. And we just we went through that process. We said, what's the purpose of small groups, and how do we, how do we really make sure we are in alignment with those purposes, that our, our people as leaders and, and people who attend groups really understand what it is we're trying to accomplish and have bought into that, and that's what they show up for. And, um, and we talked about the process of relationships in our group, and we talked about a number of other things, but it was a good time together. I want to talk to you tonight about, um, about the evidence of when God has, has done a mighty work in the midst of a people. And that's what we see in First Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read Scripture with you. And... Um, We'll read from uh, verse 4 through the end of the chapter. And uh, the, the apostle writes this. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy, given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols, to serving the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus 
who rescues us from the coming wrath. And this is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would read, uh, bless the reading and the preaching of your word tonight and encourage us with the power of the Holy Spirit and encourage us with your love as we consider what it means to be together as your people and to uh, commit ourselves time and time and time again to the process of nurturing and building up relationships that are uh, encouraging and strengthening and that help us persevere and know you well. Lord, I pray that you would help us be uh, more effective disciples, that we would understand that the end result of all of our small group activities and really the, the result of our church is that we would worship you as your disciples, that we would honor you and we would give praise to the glory of your grace as your disciples. Lord, help us now and stir in us um, the power of the Holy Spirit to be changed and encouraged and built up now in Christ's name. Amen. We made a connection tonight that uh, is, is an obvious one, but it's not one we talk about a lot. And the connection was this, that the end result of small group ministry at Lincoln Avenue is discipleship. Uh, one of the things that we discuss, though, is that we typically have uh, kind of a dichotomy in thinking about uh, d- discipleship, and we separate discipleship and relationships. We even talked about our small groups that way. That sometimes discipleship is kind of the content or the, the Bible study element or something like that. And that there's, well, we do good at relationships, but we don't always do good at discipleship. And I kind of want to flatten that out and say, hey, they're the same thing. If we do relationships really well and they're spiritual relationships and they're Christ-honoring relationships, those relationships create discipleship. And they're going to cause God's word to be taught. Whether It may be formally, it may be informally, but it's the same thing. And, and it all works together. You know, I think as we look at the life of this congregation and we look at this text here, uh, sometimes we see clear evidences of when God has done something and when God has moved and stirred. And I bet if you were to ask Jason uh, to reflect on his time as pastor here, I bet if you were to ask some of the members who have been here from the beginning, they would say, God has done something really unique in this fellowship. He's moved in some mighty ways. Uh, No one thought we would be at this point where we are today as a church when we started, you know, this many years ago or when we overcame that trial, whatever that trial may have been in the past, we never thought we would be here. But God has done something really remarkable. Isn't that what Paul says here? He says, we know, brothers loved by God, that God has chosen you. And then he goes on to talk about how he knows that. He says, we know that because there's, there's some evidence of this. The evidence is this. He says, because... We, we preach the gospel to you and it came. The gospel came into your lives and you believed it. You responded to the gospel. And, and the gospel, though, it came in a, in a unique way. It came with power and it came with the Holy Spirit and it came with deep conviction. So he's talking kind of about both sides of what happened there. And he talked about the response of the Thessalonians to the gospel. And, and they responded with faith when, when the good news of Christ was proclaimed to him, and it cost them something. He talks about uh, a little later in, in, this, in this text the severe suffering that they went through for the gospel and, and for, for their allegiance to Christ. And he says, you Christians, you Thessalonians, you have evidence in your life that God has done something. And, and he talks here, and, and I think it's an it's a important thing for us to consider, how that evidence is understood. And, we're, and that's where we're spending a lot of our time on tonight understanding how that evidence works itself out. So let, let's, let's back up and say there's this big idea that Paul says, you 
Christians, you Thessalonians, you've been chosen by God. And we know that because you responded to the gospel. And that's another way of saying God has been at work. And and Lincoln Avenue could say the same thing. God has been at work in the history of this church and in the history of this fellowship. He's done remarkable things. He's saved people that others might have never thought would turn to Christ. And he's, he's, he's healed people and he's saved families and he's salvaged relationships and, and he's caused great, great and marvelous things to occur in people's lives. God has been at work and we know that he's been at work by this evidence, this, this demonstration. And that's a key word that we'll talk about more. This demonstration of his power or of the reality of the gospel being lived out. Paul doesn't only talk about though this, this evidence of the gospel in kind of a you believed this information, though that's really important, isn't it? You know, Paul clearly defines what the gospel is in a number of places. Specifically, when he talks to the church in Corinth, he explains that the gospel is the death, the life, the death, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and he explains it. He says, this is the gospel that we've preached to you. Paul's really intent that the gospel is a content-loaded message. He goes so far as to say in other places that if anyone preaches a different gospel, don't listen to him, push him out of your church, curse him. I mean, and I mean, he's not trying to be mean. He's saying it's so important that you get the message of Jesus right that you do not ever compromise it. You push him out. You don't listen to their teaching. He calls people who would compromise the gospel wolves. He calls them... Uh, tools of Satan. I mean, he's got strong words for people who mess up the gospel, either intentionally or unintentionally. He's got really strong words about that. But here he talks about the fact that the gospel is not only evidenced with a, a kind of a content or information. He talks about the gospel in demonstration. That's what he says. He says, you know how we lived when we were with you for your sake, and you became imitators of us tonight in our our leader time we were talking you know we're talking with our small group leaders and we just kind of pushed the question out there we said how many of you want to uh, tell your group next week follow jesus follow me as i'm following jesus hey come live like me imitate me imitate my life imitate my prayer life imitate and we didn't go into all this detail but i mean you get the idea imitate my prayer life imitate my bible study life uh guys in my group imitate me as a father you know ladies imitate my wife as as, as a woman Uh, Hey, look at my children. You raise your children the way I'm raising my children. You imitate me as I'm following Jesus. And we kind of got some snickers when we said that because really nobody wants to have that kind of pressure on them, do they? We all want to say, no, uh, let's all just look at the biblical text and let's just see what Jesus did. And let's let's all point at him. But that's not what Paul said, was it? He actually invited people to scrutinize his life. And he embedded his life in the lives of others. And he says, I want to show you what the evidence of the good news of Jesus looks like. Here's what happens when you follow Jesus. It changes you like this. And here's what happens in relationships when that occurs. And he would go and live with people. And, and he might work at his trade, making tents for a month or a year or in one instance, three years. Spend extended periods of time in one location teaching and living the gospel with others. So much so that the Thessalonians looked at Paul's life and they said, we're going to follow Jesus that way. He says, you became imitators of us. And I think Paul didn't just mean him. I think he meant his whole party. I think Paul kind of assumed that if you were going to be in his group, you were going to live a life worthy of the gospel because that was his words to the church in Ephesus. He was going to ensure that everyone who traveled with him was serious about their faith. 
And that they were so serious about their faith, they would put themselves out there. They would open up their lives and say, I'm going to live with you all. You're going to see the fruit, good or bad, and I'm going to show you how to follow Jesus. And when I fail, I'll show you how to repent. And when we get victory, we'll show you how to praise God. And when, when we're suffering, we'll show you how to suffer rightly with Jesus. I mean, I'm going to live my life with you. I'm going to show you how to be a Christian. So much so that Paul unites in, this, in his statement back to the church here. He says, you imitated us and the Lord. I mean, that's a pretty profound thing. He didn't just say, you really, really began to look like Jesus. For him, it was all the same thing. We're all working together to, to image forth who Christ is and to show him in the world. You know, there's, there's a profound thing, and, and we'll talk some, we're going to kind of work our way to this point tonight. But Paul says that this actually had a real fruit in this particular church. He says, you became imitators of us, and, and he talks about their suffering. And in verse 7, he says, and so you became a model. Now, let me ask this. What is a model? A model is something that we would all look at that we, that would be, we could reproduce. I know in, in the life of the church, we're always looking for Sunday school models. Isn't that right, Jason? We, we, uh, we, we hear from those who write Sunday school material or uh, who have studied Sunday schools. You know, Sunday school has been around for over 100 years now and kind of the way we do it. And, and there's lots of opportunity to try to say, let's find a Sunday school model that works. And what do we mean by works? One, it produces some results. And two, it's reproducible. We want to find something that, we, that somebody did in some place that is unique enough that it, that it kind of it, it, it got, some, it got some traction and worked. But it's generic enough that we can bring it down here to Woodward and we can do it and it works. You know, uh, probably, I don't know what the number is, maybe 15 years ago, a guy named Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. And maybe some of you have read The Purpose Driven Life. It came out a few years ago. Uh, but way before there was a purpose-driven life, kind of his claim to fame in church world was the purpose-driven church. And he writes this book and he says, hey, this is the story of what we've done in Southern California to grow a great church. And, and it is a good church. They've done amazing things. But right up front, he tells everybody, he says, hey, I'm just telling you our story. And there may be some things you can learn that might be helpful to you. But do not try to do what we did. It won't work. Don't try to use this as a model. Well, guess what everybody did? Everybody went out and said, hey, let's try to use this as a model and let's try to reproduce what they did here. Well, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But do you see that we all have this desire to, to find some sort of example out there in the world and then try to reproduce that example in our lives? We do that in sports, don't we? If you want to know how to throw a football, throw a great spiral, you don't watch people who are really bad at it. You watch people who can zing the ball 60 yards down the field and drop it on a dime in someone's hands. You say, I'm going to do that. And then you practice over and over and over what that person does. If you want to learn how to shoot a great jump shot, you don't, you don't go find the person who bounces it off the front of the rim over and over and say, man, I'm going to do it just like that, but try to improve a little bit to get it over. No. Well, you find that person that just drains it consistently. And you say, you know, if, if you're a young person, you say, I'm going to learn that. And you actually practice what you see them do. Even if you can't do it, you practice it. You find some sort of model outside of you. And then you take that into yourself and you begin to emulate that. Well, that's what Paul said happened kind of organically in the lives of these Christians. He said, you saw in us something remarkable. And I don't think he's bragging. I think he's demonstrating the change, the power of God. And he says, and you began to act like us. And it was such a profound change that the other churches in the area looked at you and they said, wow, what's going on 
in the Thessalonican church is amazing. The quality of their faith, the quality of their commitment, their desire for God, their desire for each other, their love, their service, their sacrifice, their joy in the midst of great suffering is an example to us. He says so much so that it was in the entire region. And then Paul makes this incredible statement. He says, not only is it in the, is it in the region, he says, your faith in God, in verse number 8, he says, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, we don't think Paul literally means every person in the whole world knew, the, knew of the faith, faith of the Thessalonican church. I think we should take that to mean that their faith story was spreading everywhere the gospel was spreading. That everywhere the gospel went, when you wanted to know how to share the gospel, how to live the Christian life, or how to be a church, the original purpose-driven church was this one, if we could look at it that way. You look back and you say, they're doing it right. Their love for one another, it's right up here. It's what God wants. Their, their, their desire for worship, man, it, it honors the Lord. Their service, it's deep. Let, let me ask this question. Where did that come from? Where did this remarkable change come from? You know where I think it came from? I think it comes from relationships. When, when you evaluate a church, there's, there's, really just, there's really just two ways you can understand a church. One way to understand a church is a location that hosts worship services for disparate people to come in and attend and then depart from and live separate lives. And in every sense of the word, that is churches. You can look in any city in America and you can find a church that meets that exact definition. Large groups of people gather. They'll hear a pastor like Jason or a pastor like someone else who gets up and they passionately and faithfully proclaim God's word with truth and power. And lots of individual people might even respond to that. But the church is primarily motivated and organized around attending these worship events. Some churches even go so far as to call them experiences. I was in Oklahoma City the other day, and I saw this sign for a church, and it didn't call it a worship service. They had like, I don't know, a few services over the weekend, and they said, you know, experience times. And then they listed it, not worship times, but experience times. And, and I'm not knocking them for it. I mean, that's, that's fine. Communicate it however you want to. But the idea is come to this event and have this experience, you, and then you, and then you, and you, you all come and have your own experience here. We're, we're offering this. And that is a very real way that church happens every week. Maybe you, maybe I just define for you what you think church is. But there's another way that you can think about church. And I would say this other way is more the exception than the rule. And it's, it's a series of interconnected relationships of people growing and maturing in Christ. I think that's what we have here in the church at Thessalonica, a series of relationships. Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church is unique in that it's accomplished something as a Southern Baptist church that... A lot of churches don't, and that's a, a good balance between Sunday school and small groups. Uh, I've been to enough meetings with uh, church pastors to know that that's always hard. How do you make Sunday school happen in the morning, and how do you make small groups happen in the evening? And I think the way you do that well, and I think the way this church has done it well, is by recognizing that they have different purposes, and that small groups have a very unique Purpose, And we spent 30 minutes before we really got into any of our teaching tonight in our leadership time. We spent about 30 minutes talking about purpose. What is it that we're trying to do in small groups? The purpose of small groups at Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church is single. To develop Christ-centered relationships so that we would be more effective disciples, more faithful to disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
when we look at the church in Thessalonica, when we look at this church, this group of believers, we see a group of people who experienced authentic relationships with Paul and his people, those that were traveling with him. And so much so that he references his time there. He says, you all know how we lived with you for your sake. And he talks about his time with him. He says, you remember how we were with you, the way we lived with you, the way we, we showed you the gospel, the way we demonstrated the power of the change of God in us. You could see how we handled things. And it rubbed off on you. One of the guys tonight, when I, we were talking about how we see discipleship occur in small groups, he, he kind of jokingly said, by osmosis, it just, it just kind of bleeds through. And that's exactly right. That's what Paul says happened here. He says, you received both the message, but you also were affected by our life. And our lives are now affected by you. And your lives are affecting other people so much so that everyone in the region and everywhere we go, we tell people about that church. The key to it is relationships. Now, can you grow a great church by having fantastic preaching in a great event? You can. And lots of them do. And I'm not knocking them in the bit. But I think it's a far superior thing to establish people in dynamic relationships with God and with one another where they live together. And as we read tonight earlier, they encourage each other and they strengthen each other. One life on one life, one family for one family, one group for one group, building and building into one another. As we think about what's happening here, I want you to. Think about your own life tonight. Think about those times when you've grown spiritually. For some of you, that's a, a thing that's not hard to think about because you, you're experiencing incredible spiritual growth right now. God is stirring in you. He's, uh, he's, he's making changes in you and in your family. He's leading you to change your spending habits and your, and your, uh, and your relationship habits. He's, he's, he's stirring in you to, to, to change how you relate to your kids and how you relate to your spouse and how you relate to your family. He's changing your vision for what, what kind of home you should live in and how you should be involved in international missions. I mean, he's just really, he's just really messing up your world. You kind of had this neat and cozy world and he's just messing it up. And he's saying, Hey, these things are going to change. And this is what discipleship looks like. And this is what you following Jesus looks like. And I'm going to mold you into this. And I want you to follow me. And you're saying, yes, I want that. I want to follow you, Lord Jesus. What do I do next? And, and when, you look at, when you look in your life for spiritual activity, you don't have to look far. But it may be the case that some of you here, maybe you're in kind of one of those low times. You say, you know what? I feel kind of dry. And there's not much going on in me. I mean, I, I'm not you know, running off and committing terrible sins. And I'm, I'm, I'm not leaving the faith. And I'm not trying to renounce Jesus. But I feel dry and I'm going through a bad time. In either instance, I, I want to offer something to you. There's, there's one really great answer to help you continue your spiritual growth or to help stir back up spiritual growth, and that's Christ-centered relationships. The primary mechanism that God has chosen to use throughout all of the history of the church to develop the people of God is relationships. A dad discipling his son, a mom teaching her daughter, a dad telling his daughter who she is in Christ. A mom teaching her son how to honor women and how to love God and how to be a faithful man. A pastor faithfully serving a congregation, not from afar, but by getting involved in their lives. A leader, a teacher, a servant, a deacon 
getting involved, knowing people, being known, living wide open and saying, hey, here I am. How can I help you and serve you and be with you? Small groups at Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church, we're we're, we're about to turn over a new semester. We're, We're right between. You've got an opportunity. I would imagine a lot of you go to small groups, but you heard the pastor speak tonight that we had a really big Sunday today. And of the people who regularly attend this church, over half of them on any given week never attend a small group. You know what that says to me? That says about half of us on any given week are experiencing vital relationships. And about half of us on any given week may not be. I don't want to say they're not, but may not be. There's probably a strong chance that they're not. Isolation is never a healthy thing. Separation is never a healthy thing. Being disconnected from the body of Christ is not good. You've got an opportunity turning right here in January. I want to challenge you with something now. What would it be like if in 10 years when people were planning churches anywhere in North America, you may think, what what kind of thing are you going to say here? I'm serious. What would it be like if in 10 years... When people were planting churches in North America, they said, here's the gospel. And and I'm a pastor and I want to come live with you. And I want to show you the gospel. I'm going to live with you. And I also want to tell you the story about a church in northwest Oklahoma who's so invested in Christ-centered relationships that it changed them and it changed their families and it changed their community. Let me tell you that story. And let me explain to you as kind of a reference point. When we wonder what to do, we look over there and we say, well, that's what they did. And that's how they do it. And not because they've got the right answers, but because they committed to the right things. Let me tell you about small groups at Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church. And you know, we're not exalting Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church. What we're doing is we're exalting the process that God has given us in Scripture to see lives changed. And that process is you proclaim the gospel with with power and with determination and with a commitment to never see it altered or changed. We always faithfully preach Christ. But then we also faithfully, as best as we can, as, fa- as, as flawed people, live that gospel out with people around us. And we commit to that process. And we, and, we've, and we push off any other process that might offer faster growth or the appearance of more change. And we say, no, no, no. That is how lives are changed. One life at a time. One relationship at a time. One small group. At a time. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if it was always the case that this church and another church just like it and a hundred other churches just like it were the reference points for how you build dynamic Christ-centered relationships when you plant a new church? Because that's what Paul said happened here. He says, we, we always tell people about you all because you've become a model for what it looks like to follow Jesus well. And and I don't think he meant big offerings or fancy buildings. I think he meant commitment to Christ and a commitment to the kingdom of God and a commitment to Christ's mission as central in their lives. There's a mechanism that happens right here every week where people commit to a process that says, I want to know you and I want you to know me. And so I'm going to show up and at the, at the end of the evening service, we're going to go and meet in someone's home. We're going to share a meal. We're going to pray together. And we're just going to spend time together every week. And it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a while. But week by week by week, we're going to preach the gospel to each other. 
enough that God will do a mighty thing in us. We're going to live with one another in such a way that we grow in the grace of God. Here's what I know. I know that God has called us to imitate Christ and he's told us that we should live lives that are worthy of imitation so that we can demonstrate the gospel to others. And then he's shown us here a way of living together so that others can imitate that way. And it all happens because of a commitment to one key idea. We just, you can call it lots of things. We call it Christ-centered relationships. I want to challenge you. If you're not in a small group, start getting into one this January. If you are in one, talk to Jason, talk to the other staff, talk to your small group leader and say, hey, how do we help our group grow? If there's someone in your group that can start a group, encourage them to pray and get ready to start a new group. Because I don't know about you, but our group's full. We need, we need more groups right now, ready for, in January for new people to come in that their lives could be changed. He says, you receive the gospel with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and now you are a model for all the churches. Church, invest yourselves in one another and in Christ Jesus our Lord, and God will do great things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity tonight to uh, be together to worship and sing and to pray and to read your word and talk about it or stir in us the, the power of committed relationships with each other, of committing to each other, of serving one another, of loving one another, of deeply caring for what goes on in each other's lives, for not, for not isolating, withdrawing, but committing ourselves and humbling ourselves to be the people of God. And to serve you well and to, and, and to show that in the lives of other people. And Father, I pray for this congregation that it would be a witness and a demonstration of your grace in Woodward, Oklahoma and in the world. And that every church would be that way, Lord. Not just this one. Lord, raise up your church. Draw your people to commit to Christ-centered relationships with each other and in their families. So that you would receive all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jason.